Hey everyone, it's Anna. On today's episode of This Must Be Pop, I talk with Logan Grumet, a musician, songwriter, producer, and creator of Vibe Machine. You may have seen his videos on Instagram and TikTok where he dissects pop music and talks about the difference between a recording and a song. And he also teaches what an underlick is and how it makes or breaks a recording of a song. This was a really cool conversation and it took an unexpected Hanson turn, which was amazing. And if you want to learn more, you can find Vibe Machine, that's Vibe with a three instead of an E, on all of the socials. And you can also check out Logan on his Underlick Songwriting Masterclass. One quick note for those who are looking for the Harry Styles part two episode, that will be coming out next. And Lizzie and Hallie will be back for that. So stay tuned. Love your whole vibe right now. Thanks. Love this how you're in the studio. The, it's the stew, the box. <laughs> That's great. Just wanted to talk to you because I found your TikTok videos and I thought that they were super interesting. And I just wanted to chat with you because I'm not sure if you've listened to our podcast or not, but we are a podcast about legitimizing the music of boy bands and the experience of being a boy band fan. So I wanted to talk to you because I love talking to folks in the music industry that are songwriters and producers and kind of get their take on boy band music and how there's just this social stigma against boy band music and how that social stigma is totally bullshit. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I got lots of opinions about that. Well, let's start with that. What are your opinions on boy band music? Well, I guess it for me, it comes down to understanding, like I always talk about the difference of what a song is versus a record of a song. There are two different things. One is, you know, a song is just an idea of something where a record of a song is sort of a, I like to look at it like it's an Excel spreadsheet and it's literally a record that the song was performed at a point in time. An easier way to look at that is the way that songs used to be recorded, where people would just stand in a room and they would play the song and they would capture it. And that was the record that that song had happened right then. And so with a boy band and just bands in general, it's sort of there's all these other elements that come into the picture that are external things that don't necessarily put focus on the actual song that is there. And it's almost the song doesn't get the value that it truly is yeah, I don't know. There's so many there's so many things that get in the way of people actually being able to listen to a song because of all these pre ideas as far as what a what a band is, what a boy band is, what an artist is and all these other things that don't actually let you listen to the song. And I think that's funny. It's also an opportunity to showcase that these songs are, you know, there's so many songs that are really great, but you're just not hearing it because you're you're I, the identity of the package that it's in is steering you away from actually listening to it. It's very well said. You're coming at this from a lot of experience and knowledge within the music industry. So having your perspective on this is super valuable. So I I really appreciate you saying everything that you've said. For sure. So you are a songwriter and a producer. How long have you been doing that? Probably 23, 24 years. Wow. That's impressive. Since Since I was about... 
I was sort of like recording and working on songwriting and producing different projects when I started to play drums, which is like when I was 12 or 13 years old, I'm 36, I just turned 36. Awesome. Awesome. So you're only a couple years older than me. So we kind of had the same upbringing, I guess you could say, in terms of what the popular music was at yeah. different stages of our lives, for sure. Mm -hmm. My perspective on music comes from a place like my dad growing up before I was born was a sort of a rock star type, like he was a songwriter, musician, was the front guy of a band for like 10 years. And his dream was to be like a huge, well-known artist. His voice wasn't spectacular in the traditional sense of that, but it was it was definitely his voice. But he was very, very good at writing songs. And so he wrote tons and tons of songs and lyrics. And so his relationship was always with songwriting and always wished that his productions could sort of meet where he heard it in his head. So I can't see it, but I am holding right in my hands the tapes from his recording sessions. And I have so many of these from the 80s of all of his songs and his band sort of ended. And, you know, my dad had a lot of like sort of mental issues and bad relationships with drugs. And he had three kids. And so he didn't keep doing music, which is kind of like was this sad point and that I didn't realize when I was young as far as him continuing to create which was really his gift and so his relationship with music really became one with just loving music and not putting his music out and this was like in the you know 90s he uh, was a huge fan of everything that was coming out all the big pop songs and so we would just listen to them and drive around in the car together and he was introducing me to new things that were coming out when he was in his mid to late 40s and, and that's how my love for music came because he was sort of non-genre specific he would just sort of jump on whatever songs he really loved everything from it could be eminem it was everything to like he was listening to the dixie chicks he was sort of jumping around to all different stuff but he came from a rock world and so his his love for music is something that transferred into me and my ability to hear things through his songs living in my head my dad was killed when i was 16 and so his music never really got heard and it's going to be soon but my angle always comes from the perspective of the song being the thing that is the magic and the production and the artist that's performing it is secondary to the song being the most valuable thing and so that's just sort of where my head's at with that and my journey as far as being like a songwriter producer has always been one as far as how to get that right and allow everything else to sort of form around it. I love that. And I can totally relate to having parents that are super influential in your love of music. They did have a rock background, but they were also not very genre specific. And yeah. I think that's kind of the best approach to have. Everyone's going to have their own taste in music. Yeah. But to appreciate different aspects within music and to not let the marketing of it all get in the way, I think is super important, kind of to yeah. what you said. Yeah, so. it can be it can be hard for people to get past certain things. And it, and it sometimes takes a cover of a song for you to really hear the song through a lens that's more of the right vibe for you, opposed to all the external stuff. Me, I don't care. I'll listen to anything full volume and enjoy the hell out of it. But there's a lot of people that are not even open to that because of all this other shenanigans. <laughs> Absolutely. What exactly is Vibe Machine? So basically, this project that I'm working on is somewhere between a community and artist project, as well as a way to educate people around music and also a music technology. So basically, what I told you about the story with my dad and stuff, he actually had this idea. There's a there's a drawing I'm going to pull over to you real quick. He had a friend put this together back in the 80s. This I'm showing on camera right now. 
this robot, this musical robot that could sort of take his songwriting and it could bring it to humanity. It could sort of produce his songs and bring them to life. That was an idea that he turned to, to be like, I want it to be easy for people to hear my music because he was writing so much music and he tried starting a music publishing company and stuff and it didn't take off. But that idea of that robot that could do that was something that had always lived within me. Actually, the name of it was Midi Matilda and that became my band's name back in 2010. And so our, band, our band's been around since 2010 and we've got signed and we toured all over the country and we played a bunch of festivals and I was in that band mode, sort of committed to doing the band thing like my dad was. And I was like, well, the band's going to make it. The band's going to make it. And we saw like some like really cool success as far as bands go and how having our music reach millions of people. However, it became something where I think in like in, actually during the pandemic, we sort of reached a point where we're like, if our music isn't naturally reaching as many people as it can on its own, then we got to just be really like aware that we need to commit to doing music just for the love of doing it and allow whatever happens to happen with that. And so through that, this new project sort of emerged for me personally of making a new type of music experience that would be one that would not be focused around a singular artist. And it would be one in which it is a music experience where you can stream and, and listen to a song instead of a recording of a song. And what I mean by that is if you go on Apple Music or Spotify and you click a click something, you're you're listening to a recording of a song. And so the Vibe Machine, this project will stream songs. And so by streaming a song, you can change the singer in real time and you can change the music production in real time on an individual basis. So everyone's listening to the same song, but the, the version that you are listening to is unique to you in that moment, which is a really interesting sort of like concept of, as far as how that even relates to life, as far as being a person and experiencing what reality is. And this is a way to sort of showcase the individual experience and how music can sort of conform to you versus it being this finite thing. And sort of the tagline is, is that records are history and songs are forever. And this is really a way of building a community around how do you do that, where you can sort of showcase the greatest singers in the world and showcase some of the most upcoming producers and find the best songs that nobody knows about and allow them to be these things that are more fluid in the experience of them so that people can really listen to a song and a version of it. And this is really about new music so that it's, you know, you may, everybody may hear a song and it's all a different version that everybody's experiencing. And it sort of showcases the songwriting, but also creates this really unique way to find a version of something that nobody else has ever heard before. And so that's sort of what this whole thing is. I'm sort of just building community around educating people. And I want there to be a bunch more great music in the world because I just love listening to music. And so I'm trying to help people make music that I think sounds great and that they think sounds great. And it ultimately become a live show as well with this. So it's sort of like live show, workshops, music technology. I never wanted to be a music educator person, like a teacher. I don't even like those words because I just thought that meant being like a failure at doing stuff. I come at it from like, it's art, like we're going to make a thing. I'm still, I'm finding that balance between sort of maintaining the integrity of everything and not being in a mode of, yeah, well, it's great. You get a, you get an A for sending the thing. And I'm like, no, it's like, it has to be awesome. And so my standard for music is very, high for something to satisfy me. And so I'm trying to find ways to bring that out in others and build an experience where you could listen to a new format of music that would be, or songs, I should say, that would blow people's minds basically anytime that they listen to it because it's not locked as a recording. That's yeah. it's kind of a lot, but it, it's, it's all being discovered. Yeah. And 
I don't think you should look at being an educator as being a failure. I think you should look at educating as you have this knowledge of something and you've kind of discovered something and you've created this concept of the underlick, which we'll get into. And you're able to teach that to folks who want to write music or want to get a better ear for what good music is. I love all your videos talking about the underlick. And if you want to kind of explain to our listeners what that's about and how you kind of developed that concept, because that is something that you developed, right? Because I've never heard of that before. Yeah. So in 2019, I really started to just I've you know, I've been in so many songwriting situations and production situations where you reach a wall of being like, what do we do? Like, what? why is this not working? And I think when it comes to writing songs, there's three pillars. There's this is not working. And then there's the top, the other opposite end is this is working really well. This feels amazing. And then there's this centerpiece of is this working? And I think the is this working is actually this is not working. It would seem that there is a way that that's in the middle where we can find our way through. But I think really it's better to always be in the mode if possible of, wow, this is feeling incredible while we're creating something. And are there ways to not trick yourself, but create tools or habits that allow you to be in that mode as much as possible? And so I was listening to music and or songs and always noticing that there's so many songs that I love that a lot of people love, oftentimes the most popular songs by any one artist, where they start off with a instrumental melody played on an instrument that is a singable loop that the singer begins to sing on where it doesn't even change. It literally is just, it, it goes, and then the singer starts singing on top of it and it carries through. And I was like, that seems like such an obvious thing that I just wasn't paying attention to, but I loved it and everybody knows it. Everybody sings along to these at concerts. They're the most recognizable thing. The moment that a song starts at a festival, people can recognize this stuff in one second. People that don't play instruments can recognize this. People that don't consider themselves musicians can do this. People in stadiums of 100,000 will sing these things together and will get out of their own way to do that. And so I didn't have a word for that. And I come from music theory and just I come at it from a listener and lover of music. And so there are terms and words that I understand that I use with certain people, but I think there's certain words that can be ways of not holding power, but sort of holding knowledge in a way that is less relatable to many people. And so I, I, I went to college and I took like some courses on music theory. Then I lot a lot from his teacher, Dave Ernst, that really helped me a lot understand basics. But then I just sort of, I let that go. And I just, and I try to not focus on that stuff, but I know, I know enough to like know where I need to go with it. And then I think as a way to teach people that's easier than the way that I even learned it. And so the underlick concept was something I was like, I noticed this melody thing happening. Why is it happening? What's that called? And I couldn't find a word to describe it. And so based off of my lack of understanding terms, many would call that a riff in a song. And even the, the difference of a riff and a lick is something that I'm like, what's the difference of these where I really, I'm like, oh, a, I had already called it an under lick because I didn't know the difference of a riff and a lick. And once I looked up what a riff was, I'm like, that's ah, more of an under, it's more of a under riff or a riff but the word under lick is too good. It's too funny and too memorable. And I'll just, <laughs> and, I'll just make, and I'll just make the meaning. I can make new meaning for something if I just say that it's under the tongue, which makes sense. It's under the voice there. Now it's a lick. That's why it's underneath that. And it makes now it has its own meaning. And I love doing that with songwriting and with all things, just being like, I can give it new meaning, even if it came from a place of ignorance. And 
through that, I, I was telling friends about this and I was just talking about it. Certain people were understanding, certain people weren't with it. And so I just started writing these with folks just being like, let's do songwriting sessions where we're only going to create these underlicks because I really love to pull them from really great musicians. That's my favorite way to do it, where I can access their magic talents and pull them out and then use my sort of simplicity of listening to find stuff that works for me, but using their fantastical skills and talents. And so, yeah, once I started doing that, I, I, I just got obsessed with that. And I made like these playlists, like I play anytime I heard one, I just put it on this playlist. And so I have like a place with like was it a thousand, two thousand songs on it of all these underlicks. And you, if you start to listen through a playlist like that, you'll just hear how all of these songs do the exact same thing. And it's, it's just, I'm a drummer since I was 12. And so it's just pattern recognition that when you start to hear it in other songs, you can start to put that into your own songs and you can sort of find place and time to do that outside of when you're writing a song so that when you are going to write a song, specifically a lyric and melody, you can pull something up that you already know is inspiring to you. And then you can just get right into that. Because a lot of people, when it comes to production and songwriting, they do all this other stuff. They do all this other stuff that sort of isn't songwriting. And I think, you know, the word song gets thrown around, but a song is a lyric and a melody. That's what it is. It's not chords. It's not production. It's a, it's a lyric and a melody to be specific about it. And the words get tossed around. And so I'm a songwriter, but production is secondary. So to me, it's like write under licks, as far as your like process outside of writing songs and focus just on that, find the best ones and then have a folder of infinite inspiration that you just pull one out of, drop it in and you can start creating something very fast. And so it's like, it serves inspiring songwriting immensely, helps craft an entire production because it's like something that is a standalone melody that is singable on its own. It doesn't need you to sound great. It's memorable, it can live in your head and it can sort of create a bed for you to write an idea on top of and it's, it's creating harmony it's called they call it counterpoint where it's multiple melodies that are happening together it's informing the entire everything that should exist with that and it's um it's the i think it's the most powerful thing that exists in this in between of songwriting and production where you know i was watching rihanna on the super bowl recently and she has she has many songs that have underlicked some that played at the super bowl and then other ones where the band the band playing with her is playing some other stuff and they're not playing the underlick off of the record. They're playing this other thing. And then you're still hearing Rihanna sing the song, the melody and the lyric. You still know what it is because she's the, she's the, that's the focal point of why, you know, the thing that she's presenting. So the underlick is this thing that's sort of this in-between place where you can take a chord progression from a song that may be something that is non-melodic and you can turn it into a melody and then it becomes this copyrightable thing because it's a melody. And that's a really interesting concept to play with where people think chord progressions aren't a copyrightable thing, melody is. And so you can take a chord progression that's non-melodic from a very well-known song, make it melodic, and now it's yours. And that's a very weird thing that people don't really talk about. It's 100% done. And this way of working for writing songs using the underlicks is something that is done on very high level of production and songwriting, it's just not taught. And it's not taught in master classes. It's not taught anywhere, honestly. That's why that's why it's a thing, I think, right now. Yeah, I feel like you kind of hear this a lot in One Direction songs where they're taking yeah. the the underlick, as you call it, from yeah. other rock songs yeah. and they're kind of repurposing it and kind of making it their own. You see this in Best Song Ever. 
Yep. And they it's it's not quite a who sample, but it almost is. So it's it's interesting. And I, I did notice that it, it that is also on your underlick playlist on Spotify, which yep. is an amazing playlist, by the way. <laughs> These are like a lot of my favorite songs. Yeah, and they're, um, and they're just they're just they're not chosen by they're not chosen by my taste. They're chosen by function. Like it is doing that. You listen to it, and you truly get to kind of understand this concept of it's this thing that lies underneath the melody that is the reason why it's making the song so catchy. Um, yeah, I never really thought of songs in that way. So mm-hmm. now I'm going back and re-listening to a lot of songs that I thought were really catchy, and I'm like yes, they have this amazing underlick and that's why it's catchy. And yeah, I'm campaigning it, for you to add a bunch of songs to this playlist, by the way. <laughs> hey, any any song that you send over, if I listen to it and it is that I, I people send me things all the time. And if it and if it hits the test, I'll drop it right in there because, yeah. again, it's not a matter of taste. It's a matter of literally just does it do this replicatable thing in it. One Direction is a great example of uh What's the song? Um, their first big hit was um, "What Makes You Beautiful." That's what makes you beautiful. Underlick down, 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 down. That's an underlick right there. What happens? You can sing that through, and then the vocal will join right on top of it and keep going. And it's that's so when I listen to something and I want to hear when I almost test it for its underlick if it if it has one. I will play the song. I'll be like, there it is. I can sing along to that melody. The second the vocal turns on, boom. It's almost like a riff. A riff is generally described as something that's played on a guitar that is basically is that is like a melody, a repeated melody, like throughout a, something. But a riff doesn't define if something works well with a vocal. So you can have something that's like, and that's a riff. Technically, that's a riff. Would it sound good with a vocal? No. And so not all songs have underlicks on them. There are certain even boy band songs that are huge that don't have underlicks on them that are written by like Max Martin and stuff that are great songs. It's not a necessary thing for for something to have that. It's just a lot of songs do, and it's really amazing when they do. Not necessary, but most for the most part, songs that you recognize immediately all have them. And there's just there's no common word for that. People oftentimes try to say you're saying it's it, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this, and usually those words include riff, motif. Counterpoint, counter melody, song starter is one that I've heard not actually online. I hear that more like in the, like an industry term that will be used. You know, a loop, a harmony, interval. Oh, there's so many words, but none of them describe this thing that is standalone that transforms into this other thing when a vocal happens. Ed Sheeran, you know, great example of someone that that uh, uses them live. Many many boy bands use them also. And I think it was it was a good point for you to say that not all boy band songs have underlicks because a lot of the times the purpose of a boy band song is to showcase the vocals. And when you have too catchy of an underlick or too much instrumentals, sometimes that takes away from the vocals that they're trying to showcase. You can kind of see that in some songs that are almost overproduced. Yeah. And you kind of get lost in everything that's happening in that song. You know, a lot of early 2000s songs, I feel like are guilty of that. <laughs> so. Yeah, definitely. I always like to think if you're to walk into a karaoke bar and you're to he- and someone's forgot to sing and you're hearing the music and it's in so you're hearing the instrumental of it, can you recognize what song it is? Yeah, that's can, a good test for sure. Can you can you rec- can you hear the melody and sometimes you're like, "Oh, I actually can't recognize what this is." Some of the biggest songs of all time don't do this in them, but 
there's other elements it's not a rule but it is a it is kind of a rule and for for many songs we love so do you have any good examples of boy band songs that have under licks yeah let me see actually on this playlist let's okay so let me just look to so the ones i said um earlier i'm just gonna go with one one direction what makes you beautiful story of my life right now 18 best song ever are the ones that i have in here that have underlicks let's see backstreet boys have uh, i want it that way larger than life don't go breaking my heart so Ooh. i want it that way is a pretty good example you have the acoustic guitar at the beginning yeah introducing the song and then it kind of changes into the underlick I have to listen to it. Sometimes I add songs and then I, I have to list, listen back to them. I have different terms for basically, well, it's kind of ridiculous, but I have another term that I use. It's called a pop drop. And the pop drop <laughs> is a melody that is a standalone melody that can live on top of an underlick, right? So so if you're to think of a melody that would that would maybe be too much to sing on, but it's standalone, in its nature sometimes these are arrived at where they might be like a moment of like a lot of edm songs started doing this back in like the 2010s or whatever like where it'd be like the entire thing goes and then it arrives at a melodic moment that's maybe singable maybe it's just an instrument and it's a break from the vocal where maybe a single line is sort of driven through where these melodies are not as standalone they are more so these things that they live on top of the music and maybe live without a vocal because it'd be too busy like I, I have to listen to I have to listen to a song to sort of or the record of a song to sort of hear if it specifically does it. For instance, in I Want It That Way, the acoustic guitar that opens it up from my memory, that would be the pop drop. And then the underlick would be whatever is the in the in the verse. I'd have Got to listen it. to remember what that is. Generally speaking, an easy way to I mean, the way that almost every song is done now is that it starts off. It's like underlick vocal starts on. But another way is pop drop and then vocal starts on something or pop drop into an underlick. There's different ways that it can sort of be structured out. That's just my terminology for to understand these melodies and their, and their way that they serve the record of the song. I have to ask, do you like the Backstreet Boys more than NSYNC? Because I noticed that NSYNC is not on this playlist at all. Yeah, that's interesting that they're not. And it's, it's it wouldn't be because, yeah, they're not. I'd have to listen through and see why. Sometimes I just need to go through and I'll be, oh, I'll just add all the songs in one go. Yeah, for me, I think I, the way that I see them in my head, because I grew up with, you know, both of them being massive right when they were blowing up. And so there are certain in sync songs I really love, like um, from like early on uh, when they were first coming out. And they were obviously really incredible dancers and everything. Where Backstreet Boys, I always saw as being, for lack of better phrasing, I always thought that they seemed like more talented singers to me. And and like they're and they had some certain songs that were like really great songs. But in sync as well. I can't I don't know. I can't say one or the other. I respectfully disagree about okay, Boys being better vocalists. I mean they're yeah, incredible I, they're incredible vocalists, but InSync's harmony arrangement is objectively yeah. they have a five part harmony arrangement. So it's more intricate because yeah. they have both a bass singer and a countertenor so what they're able to do with their harmony arrangement is is much more sophisticated that doesn't necessarily mean that they have better songs it's just yeah. their arrangement is just much more complex than backstreet boys's arrangement uh backstreet boys's boys's arrangement is what's called a 
polyphonic harmony where they are able to sing different parts of a harmony arrangement, but each part can hold its own in terms of a melody. If that makes any sense, because yes. it doesn't—they don't have as wide of a range, and their sound is actually not as round. But oh. it's still beautiful. They've also been harmonizing with each other for almost thirty years, so it's going to sound amazing. Yeah, and they are more of a ballad-heavy band in their beginning days. They worked primarily, predominantly with Max Martin, so they had that Max Martin sound for their first three albums consistently. In sync collaborated with a lot of different other songwriters and producers outside of Max Martin. That's interesting. That's yeah. cool. That's, that's really interesting on the harmony end of that, that they had to get that you're that you I've never heard anybody talk about the way that the harmonies are done as a diff as a difference of the bands. It's very nuanced and awesome. Thank you. And awesome. also let's not forget JC Chazay having a four octave range, which is didn't know that either. There are certain like chord progressions and things in those songs where they move in a really cool way where the under because the underlet can be this thing that's a little bit more simplistic in its function where it's more of a loop where to to counter that to think of like like I have a two-year-old daughter and she's listening to um Frozen nonstop. And so I'm listening to the way that those songs are arranged and the, actually Frozen has an underlick in it as or the song Let It Go has an underlick in it. And so yeah. um but those songs also go on a ride. They go on a, 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 a progression ride, which I think is a little bit more theatrical in the way that a song goes. Even it's really interesting hearing like the song Let It Go had two different versions done of it where this happens often where there'll be like the pop version where they're, I don't know what the intention of that is where like Demi Lovato is going to sing this version of it. And you can hear that they change the songwriting to try to fit more of a pop format. And usually what they do, whatever's producing that, uh, they will cut sections that go on a journey too much and they'll go back to certain themes in the song that make it a little bit more memorable. But sometimes it like wrecks it. Sometimes it like, you're like, that doesn't sound as good. And this thing was better just as this, as this roller coaster ride of emotion. Um, but that usually doesn't fly as well these days with different productions. Things are usually a little bit more simplistic. How can things be like as simple and like memorable and repetitious as possible? It's this thing that when it's when it before anyone's singing, when you hear it, you're like, okay, cool. If that part sold, if that part, lack of better phrasing, sold me and it got me attached, then this is going to be a lot easier to hear whatever they're going to sing on top of it. And this happens a lot with really big artists now. Now they put out a record and they'll be like, there's no underlick. So the songwriting must be mind blowing to overcome that. It really is the case. And you hear this happen with Taylor Swift. You hear this mm -hmm. happen with wh whoever it is where it's, if they don't have that in their songwriting, it's almost as if, were they aware that that should have been there? I feel like they're aware of this because this happens in many of their well-known songs where you just think of a think of being at an sync concert, a Backstreet Boys concert, and the, and the tune comes on and you hear the first two notes, you know what it is. Simple yeah. Yeah. And I think Taylor Swift's a really good example because after hearing her latest album, I had all these expectations as to what it would sound like. And I kind of ended up a little disappointed in the sound. And I think your video breaking that down on the lack of underlicks within the songs on her last album, I was like, that that's exactly what it is. There's no catchy underlick within these songs. And your explanation of that and putting in a different underlick or a more catchy underlick is a great example of great songwriting, great melody, but yeah. just not having an underlick to support yeah. that.
Yeah, that's thank you for thank you. Yeah, that I have actually never heard that song, Mastermind. I have not listened to that song actually all the way through again because I didn't need to. In fact, that video uh, that I made on TikTok, uh, that's actually my most played video on both Instagram and on TikTok. And that video was made for the like, I made the video so that I could say the line that I wanted to say. And so I basically gambled and I was like, can I say why a song gets thrown to the back? Basically the opening line of the video is, this is why a song gets thrown to the back of an album. And Taylor Swift is like still figuring this out. Just me being like a little, just a little spicy with it. And I- Yeah, your, your opening for all your TikTok <laughs> videos is super spicy if as what you said, <laughs> like how you said yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> get people's attention, yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. And um, and I made that video so that I could say, like, I basically said, can I make a video that says why a song gets thrown to the back of an album? And then I basically went to the last song on the album, like, please don't have an underlick on it. And I clicked it and it didn't. And I was like, cool, I'll make the video. So I haven't actually listened to the song before all the way through. Um, but I just had to do that. I just, like I said before, I listened to the first 10 seconds of it. I'm like, great, it's an example. And, and I'm like, is there an acapella version to this? There is. And the video will work because of that. And it's, uh, on that album, there are a couple, there's a couple songs I, I, I dig on that, on that record. And the, uh, and some of them do have underlicks on them. Someone actually, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time with that album, but people show that there are certain songs that do do that. However, if you want to know why a song isn't doing a thing, ask yourself that and it'll tell you an answer really fast. And it's, I don't want to say it's unfortunate for like the songwriting as far as the lyric and the melody, but the fact of the matter is words are not as important to humans as melody is. And regardless of people recognize that or not, it is, it is, I think, just a fact. Actually, here's the, here's the example. Go watch someone do a karaoke and watch how few words they know of any song. And you'll realize yeah, so that, pe that people don't pay attention. People can enjoy a song without needing to know everything that's being said. Okay, is that wrong? No, it's that melody is literally the organization of frequencies, of vibrations in relationship to one another. A melody is, can be recognized in whatever pitch it's in, like, you know, it's higher pitch, lower pitch, and whatever speed it's at, you can recognize a melody. Words are things that are created. We have different languages all over the world. And so that's something that's not universal. Melody is actually is a universal language, regardless of if it's saying something, this human thing specifically, it's this way that we can remember things. That's why like, kids toys and, and kids movies and things all use melody to teach things like the ABCs or Twinkle Twinkle, because that's a lot easier for us to remember than words are. And so Maybe a songwriter gets angry. You're not hearing my message. Well, the fact is, melody is much more of a universal language than any, any words, I think, can ever be. Period. Yeah. It's just, an, it's just an interesting thing that's not it's not talked a lot about, and it's something that is super powerful. And people use their own words to. This is a banger. This is this is really catchy. This is these things, right? We have limited vocabulary to even describe the feeling of what a melody can do to somebody. You know, it's the it's more melody and the feeling that a song provides to you that is yeah. more important. And and I want it that way is is always kind of the example of a song making no sense. <laughs> but <laughs> you probably saw the Backstreet Boys video that I made. Yes, so, yes, yeah. about the phonetics of it all. Yeah. yeah, I've actually made a pretty similar video comparing the two and how the version that does make sense. 
it's not as catchy and it doesn't flow as nice because the phonetics just aren't there. You, you were so spot on with that video. But I also think kind of on the other, the flip side of it, songs that do make a lot of sense that actually have really deep meaning. Yeah. A song like Umbop by Hanson has a super deep meaning, but no one knows what it means because they're so focused on the Umbop chorus, yeah. even though it's really talking about growing older and having all these relationships. And yeah. some of them last, some of them don't. And it's just part of life. The depth that these seventh graders had <laughs> is just incredible. But nobody, nobody thinks about that in terms of that song. Nobody thinks about the meaning. It only... Oh, yes. It's, I mean, Hanson, Hanson's Hanson, if, if, I mean, I don't consider Hanson to be a boy band, but if they were, they're my favorite one. I've seen Hanson live more than most bands I've ever seen live before, actually. Really? Yeah. Stop it. Hanson is 100% a boy band, Logan. Okay. I will yes. respectfully disagree with you on that. They are a boy band. Great. Then they're my favorite boy band. And <laughs> I have, not only have I seen them many times, I was, you know, in high school uh, with their, their song Strong Enough to Break and everything off of, like, I have weird connections in with them because I, you know, some of my best friends have been a fan of them since, like, when they were really young. Uh, I became more of a fan in high school once they sort of had their, their sort of resurgence as far as finding their more of their own sound. I eventually, actually, I didn't realize at the time, but the guy that signed me to my first record contract was the guy that pulled them out of sort of them being stuck in like their writing rut that they got stuck in. There's a movie that was made about who, this. I forget what it's called. Who, um, who was it? Yeah. And Alan Kovac. This guy named okay. Alan Kovac. Uh, do you know who Mark Hudson is? That sounds really familiar. I don't know exactly what his role is. I just saw a clip online uh, on TikTok actually that surfaced about him. I think he's the one, one of the folks who discovered Hanson. Okay. And this DJ was like, was it really necessary for you to bring Hanson into this world? It was, I'll have to, I'll have to send you the clip because it made me so, so mad. And he was like, I listened to them. Their harmonies were incredible and they were just these fantastic musicians and they were so young. And he just talked about how talented they were and how, yes, they're a legitimate band. They're legitimate musicians. And I just thought that was, it was really cool. And he kind of took down this DJ that had no idea what he was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The album underneath is one of my favorite albums of all time. It's a great album. And, it's a great uh, album. and, I actually was fortunate enough to work with the producer that produced Mbop. Uh, this guy named, or he's one of the producers from the uh, production duo called the Dust Brothers. Um, oh, yes. John King. So uh -huh. I, yep. I learned a lot of stuff from John King back about 10 years ago. He's actually lives in the neighborhood where I am and, um, and we're friends and he's worked on a bunch of stuff. He produced uh, a lot of stuff for Beck and the Beastie Boys and for Tenacious D and a lot of groups and Hanson was something that he did early in his career producing uh mop specifically and so okay. i've heard a couple of stories about them working on that on the record of that song but yeah hansen has been something that I, I saw them my a buddy of mine is uh friends with the current bass player in hansen and i i went and saw them probably four months ago play in anaheim and some of their songs are some of the most underrated songs that uh that i i know of. i mean like that's that's my type of music for sure taylor hansen's like Love it legendary all of them are but oh i i completely agree with you everything that you just said i also agree taylor hansen is an icon 
Yeah, God. That's like, really cool. I wasn't expecting the conversation to go in a hands-in direction, but I'm all about it. Yeah, my I used to, I have probably videos of me in high school, like me and one of my best friends, David, and, a, and my buddy Spencer, my friend Lauren, we would sit at like my friend's parents' house and we would just play. We would just try to do the har- the harmonies of songs off, oh, actually all different types of Hanson songs. Mostly it was like a, almost like a Hanson cover group that was never going to play it live but we literally just love the song so much that we would just sit and try to learn them and sing the harmonies to them on acoustic guitar and ukulele and piano and it's fun it's it's again it's one of those things where the rapper that things get placed in messes with what people see three young dudes and they have long blonde hair and he people try to say oh you look like a girl or whatever whatever people Mm -hmm. were saying back then and want to like put something in a box it's like that's this interesting thing where i've always had a weird relationship with pop music because it's or i don't even like to call it pop music it's just music i think is sounded that sounds awesome and it's clearly defined that way because it's the most listened to music from any one artist is the music that i generally like the most because i like what most humans like the most but people that are you know, music snobs want to be, I think, unique in their enjoyment of music. And the fact is, this goes back to the melody thing. Melody is one of those things that you do not even have control over your love of it. And I think when people get get hear melody that is memorable, it is something where nobody wants to talk about this, but it's like they don't like the fact that it's controlling of them and people would prefer to say no i control my music taste and it's this but melody is something that transcends language it transcends the instrument it transcends all things that you could sort of put a label on and it's literally it's an organization of frequencies together vibrations that when you hear them you can remember it and if you can remember it you are being it's programming you to to latch on to the experience of the song and people don't like to be controlled and so pop music or memorable music whatever is just like universal music is this thing that i love that it does that and i think it's hilarious totally. that people try to fight that mm-hmm. and hansen's an example of them of that where they have one of the catchiest songs that's ever been written and it's not even saying words it's saying i mean the words actually in the song are really incredible but in the chorus yeah. it is something that is a non-melodic phonetically pleasing phrase that is ridiculously memorable and i think that that fact that it does that is so unifying to people it's such a thing that brings people together that people will resist that feeling they'll resist that connection to others and i find that absolutely fascinating in people's like i'm just going to make fun of this thing because i don't want it to control my connection to it and totally that's nuts. So this makes so much sense now because on your Underlick playlist, you have two Hanson songs that are super, if you know, you know, type of Hanson songs. It's Dancing yeah. in the Wind and Strong Enough to Break. And Strong Enough to Break, I think, is one of my favorite Hanson songs ever. For sure. For sure. So, so yeah. that, that's so funny because that makes so much sense that that you know these kind of deep cuts, quote unquote. So, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I, this, I, is, this is awesome. Strong Enough to Break is definitely one of my favorite songs for sure. Mm. Um, and even that's the thing though with like instrumentation of something like people instrumentation can be a really huge thing of steering people away from like i like to look at three pillars you have this song is the core okay then you have the singer who is singing that song and then the third one is what's the production around this that is showcasing this thing those things are all interchangeable with one another but if you have if you have like I think this is why certain bands can seem just sort of dated or, or, or lame to people is if 
the song isn't that great and then the instrumental is a generic sounding instrumentation and then the vocalist isn't doing it it, it can sort of like really make something not desirable however if you take strong enough to break great song i would say most human beings would be like that's really great that's that's a cool song sing it by somebody else whatever it's a great song the instrumentation on that on the on the record of it i want to say it's a it's a ukulele or it's some type of stringed instrument that gives it a it gives it a jangle it gives it a feeling to it that i can enjoy that some people will be turned off by that immediately though because the stylistically it's not doing so it's 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 sounding like this thing that they know okay so that's one point against it and then i think taylor hansen's voice is in- incredible he, like i i love totally. his voice and sometimes it might just be that thing that's in the middle that is the thing that's steering people away a great example of this is off of hansen's live album that came out in let me look at it right here which is which is one of the best live albums ever called the best hansen live and electric incredible and they open up that album with the song optimistic that's a radiohead song okay and the and their version of it is better than the radiohead version (laughs) my opinion that's just my take on it i will listen to the hansen version over the radiohead version that probably upset people it doesn't matter though there's i agree when you take the styling of that and you mix it with that you can really hear how incredible like his voice is and how great the song is and the styling it's sort of sometimes it's just taking one of those elements and changing it that can open somebody to what the thing actually is and um i just love that that's optimistic is an awesome song but the hansen version is that's my favorite one i should have started with this but defining what a boy band is and why i think that hansen falls under that category Sure. So a boy band to me is a, a male fronted ensemble that has catchy songs that are marketed to a younger audience, at least in their prime. And I think a lot of the times is you have boy bands that are categorized as boy bands because they're marketed to predominantly women. If you take that same style and market it to a broader audience, they're not considered a boy band. So I have what are called non-boy band boy bands that I, the 1975, I think is a really good example of a non-boy band boy band. But are they they considered an ensemble though? Or was ensemble me? Is ensemble just multiple people or multiple singers? Are you? Uh, It could be multiple singers. I I really just means like a band, a group, uh, doesn't necessarily need to be multiple singers. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, the 1975, and you have a couple 1975 songs oh, yeah, on your under playlist, yes. Of course, of course. But yeah, catchy songs, younger audience, but they're not considered a boy band because of how they were marketed. All American Rejects, and a lot of those like pop punk bands in the early 2000s, I think were totally boy bands. Where does Blink-182 sit within this? They're, they're a boy band, for sure. Really? For sure, yes. Yeah, they had catchy music. They're marketed to a younger audience. Yeah, coordinated outfits with them being naked. <laughs> That's true. Even though all the all small things video was them sort of like make trying to make fun of boy bands. Yes, they are but- considered that to certain. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go if we're gonna go with that. Then they're my favorite boy band. <laughs> okay. But yeah, I, I think that like kind of widening the scope of what a boy band is and understanding that really what the difference is, is uh-huh. that it's it's being marketed to 
young women. I guess my my thought with a boy band was always that it was a group of guys that aren't playing instruments on stage that are singing, not necessarily dancing, but maybe there's some dancing involved with it too. I mean, the Beatles were a boy band. They wrote their own songs. They they played instruments. That's true. I mean, that's the thing is with like the label, the labels of any one thing become these base, these mega limiting factors for any one thing. And it's like with genre, when you're seeing this sort of just like melt away right now, because there are so many sub 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 genres. I'm like, what? You you can have an album that has like all different stylings of songs on it. So why do we why do we have these these genres are just ways of just understanding something and keeping I don't know, having ownership over something. So many of these things, like you're saying, they have overlap to them. And it's like, well, what is it? That there, there is no definitive definition of these things sometimes. And there's all this yeah, overlap. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about your masterclass? Sure. Yeah, I have a like a masterclass that's all about writing underlicks for your songwriting. So you can sort of always have inspiration when creating, um, which is a really cool thing I put together. And then I'm just building out a bunch of different sort of in-person workshops and different ways for people to improve their songwriting and collaboration and just listening to music in general. I have a YouTube channel that I'm starting where I'm just going to be listening to songs and just sort of dissecting them and, you know, trying to tune people up to be able to listen to the things that they may not be aware that are right in front of them. Awesome. I have a bunch of suggestions for songs for you to listen to on that. Cool. <laughs> Always. So where can folks follow you on the socials? Um, on it's, it's vibe machine with a three instead of the E on Instagram, as well as on TikTok. Those are the two main spots I'm at. And then YouTube as well. Thank you so much. This was a really cool conversation and I hope that we can connect again. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we can do like a deep dive on Hanson. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> awesome. I can't wait. It was awesome talking to you. Thank you for having me. This Must Be Pop is written, produced, and edited by Anna. Our theme song, Teenage Girls Made Rock and Roll, is written and performed by Madam Daly. Add us on Instagram for more content and to be the first to find out which band will be featured in the next episode at This Must Be Pop Pod. That's This Must Be P-O-P-P-O-D on Instagram. Got a question or suggestion? Email us at This Must Be Pop Podcast at gmail.com.